Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Well, first of all, to Emily Brown, thank you for the gift of that amazing music video. And um, I'm sure we'll post it somewhere if you want to see it again. So uh, thank you, Chris, also for your work on that. It's incredible that you guys can put together uh, things that just kind of draw us into difficult topics. And eternity is a difficult topic. I think it is among the most difficult uh, components of faith Uh, to capture. What is it to believe in eternity? You know, but I like difficult ideas and I'm not so much pushed down by them as challenged by them to rise up and to understand some scriptural truth that I think is tough to comprehend. A few years ago, I was uh, headed on vacation and I don't know what you read on vacation. I know that I read a very different uh, genre of literature on vacation than does my wife. Uh, Debbie says when you go on vacation, you want something light and airy, something easy, uh, something sort of fun to read. And she, by the way, is a very fast reader. So frequently on vacation, she will have chosen, you know, three or four books to read. And I'll usually find some thick tome that I've really wanted to read but haven't had time to. And I'll, I'll just plow through it as I move through, you know, a couple of weeks it'll take me to, to consume what I like to read. So there was a book I wanted to read, and it was, it was this one. A friend of mine put me onto this. I'll tell you more about my friend in a moment. It's called The Great Unknown by Marcus Du Satoy. And uh, this is a book of science. I'm not a scientist by training. I am fascinated by science. I am curious. I think I've gained a rudimentary understanding, uh, but I really have to work. I have to struggle uh, with something like this. And basically, Satoy says that there are seven areas at least of scientific inquiry, seven instances in which observation fails. There are these places that he knows now we have reached the, the end or the limit. In fact, what fascinates him as a mathematician and a scientist from Britain, he teaches at Oxford, what fascinates him is that he believes we have come to the first moment of scientific inquiry where scientists are legitimately able to say there's no more. We can't get past this point. That's not to say there won't be other discoveries or other areas, but just that there is a limit to what can be observed. There is a limit to what can be known. And in these seven areas, he says, we are very near that limit. We are very near the place that there is a threshold that cannot be crossed, and this fascinates him. Now, I will tell you, this is one of the most spiritual books I've ever read. It is one of the most theologically interesting books I've ever read, and it is written by an agnostic who keeps wrestling throughout the book with the possibility of eternity, the existence of God, and and says so openly, speaks to other physicists, other scientists who do believe profoundly in a creator and is absolutely fascinated by what they say. But even by the end of the book, just can't quite cross the line to belief, as much as says he wants to. He just, he just can't do it. So I was so profoundly impressed by this thick, difficult book that I thought it would be fun if the staff read it along with me. They didn't agree with me, I'm going to tell you, but that's okay because sometimes I do get to be boss. 
And I always choose what we're going to read for our fall and spring staff retreats. And I, th- I think this was the fall one. I can't remember for sure. I guess it was after summer. And I said, coming home from vacation, I said to Debbie, who had listened to part of this book with me, I'm going to have the, s- the staff read this with me. And she said, how eager are you to keep your staff? <laughs> you might want to rethink that. And I said, no, 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 they'll do it. So we got enough copies for everybody and the staff organized reading parties, uh, lunch parties to, to trudge through this. And they began to grumble and complain, but I'm used to that. No big deal. And they asked me over and over, why are you making us read this book? Or they said to me, I, I, just, I just can't, I can't, I can't do it. But they did it. And so for the retreat, I invited the friend of mine who had referenced this book in a meeting that we were in. And it told me, you got to read it. And this friend of mine is a pastor who was a physicist. And I don't mean just any physicist either. I mean a highly trained theoretical physicist, a, a doctorate in the field who, who entered and who practiced and then who felt called <clears throat> later in life to ministry. So Steve Chang, a Korean pastor, Steve has always fascinated me with his ability to teach science and to teach the Bible as if he's holding a science text in one hand and a Bible in the other. And he believes what I do, which is there is no real opposition of science and faith. If the two are not opposed, it's an artificial false dichotomy that we've created on both sides of the fence. And that really these are complementary things. What we can observe and what is beyond what can be observed are complementary pursuits. All truth is God's truth. And when I, when I, Think about that and the difference it could make. I mean, look at the profound implications in our society today for science and faith being enemies of one another in the eyes of some people. Look at what happens when that occurs, when we don't respect the realm of each. And so I invited Steve to come to this retreat and to be my co-facilitator, and he spent an entire day with us, drawing on the whiteboard, uh, presenting slides, reading from scripture, talking about all sorts of elements of scripture that he thought we should be able to see through the observation of science. And it was just amazing. I don't know if everyone thought it was as amazing as I did. For me, it was a profound religious experience. I mean, I, I was literally in tears at times, just thinking about how awesome this was. And I wasn't the only one impacted that way, but I I don't think everyone was. It was just an amazing day. So there's this one moment where we're talking about eternity and Steve is presenting this notion or this idea that the most recent findings of quantum physics argue for the existence of a creator. And he's telling me about scientists like Pilkinghorn and others who believe that is true and other scientists that are friends of his who cannot cross the bridge to eternity, cannot get there. And he's, he's saying, I'm telling you, there is no possible way for you to consider these scientific understandings without coming to the understanding also of a creator. He said, I cannot fathom that anyone wouldn't see it. And he starts to tell us about the elements of these modern understandings that point to a divine creator. And he gets 
to this notion of eternity. And he says, here's the thing is, is that God is unlimited. And if we understand scientifically what it means to be unlimited, it means that God exists in infinite dimensionality. That is, he, has, he, he does not have two dimensions or three dimensions or four. He's unlimited in his dimensionality. And indeed, the scripture tries to talk about that in ways, you know. God is transcendent and he goes everywhere at once, a wheel within a wheel. There are all sorts of pictures in the Bible trying to describe this. And Steve pointed some of those out. And he says, the thing is that we are created of infinite dimensionality. We bear the image of it, but we have been governed by three dimensions. We're moving through time and space. And for that reason, it is impossible for us to perceive that which is infinite, though it is right there with us all the time. And we are in fact, a part of it. So our time is a part of this infinite eternity. Our time is a part of this infinite dimensionality. We are a part of, of this infinite dimensional God, but we can't perceive it. Now, at this point, I look around the room as I did several times to see how the other staff were embracing this because I was struggling with this idea. So, you know, you're talking to somebody. I mean, Steve is absolutely brilliant. He is positively brilliant. And he's sharing this idea and he's trying to share it over and over again, how, you know, you get louder and louder, hoping people will understand. But, but for us, it's, it's, like, it's like a foreign concept, and so my brow is furrowed and I look around the room and everybody else's brow is furrowed too and we're kind of giving him, you give me this look sometimes, by the way. You give me this look like, what in the, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And at that moment, in an uncharacteristic way, my rocket scientist, church executive, people have always asked me, why do you need a, he is literally a rocket scientist, why do you need a rocket scientist? who in his previous life did rocket science to be your church executive. And in this moment, he proved why. He's a multi-gifted guy. But in this moment, he proved why we needed that. And he literally bounds out of his rocker, by the way, during staff retreats, breath just back and forth the whole time. It's constant motion. And he bounds out of his rocker with my speaker that I'm, I'm, I'm paying to be here. Standing right there, he just bounds out, he grabs a pen, he goes to the board, it's like, move, Steve, and he, and he starts to draw something on the board, and he says, look, 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 let me show you something. And I'd seen this before, but not in this context. And when he finished, I'm serious, everybody in the room went, oh, ah, and a few Robin Minor types even said, amen. There was something to it. So I thought, what if you could see that? I think the hard thing for us, come on up, Brett, while I'm talking. I'll give you a little time to move to the stage. Here's the thing is, is I think the most difficult aspect of faith for us is to perceive of the existence of something beyond what we can not only, not only sense, but understand. What is eternity? And why can't you see it right now? So Brett, take it away. Okay, a little multi-dimensional physics, just a little bit. But in, in looking at things in different dimensions, you have to kind of place yourself in those other dimensions. How do they view things? Kind of hard to do when you're thinking about, let's say, a fourth dimension coming into a third dimension. But to make it a little simpler, you can look at two dimensions. Now, two dimensions, an excellent example of this is a whiteboard. Height, width. 
No depth, nothing coming out. Everything exists on this one plane. So let's say you're a two-dimensional being. You are a triangle. To your world, everything is flat. What would it be like if a three-dimensional object like this ball came into your existence? So as it starts to approach, you can't see it because you have no perception of what this third dimension means. Everything looks like a line to you. So as it comes closer and closer, you still can't see it until it actually touches that plane that you're in. And that first point that it touches, it just looks like a dot. Because just one point of this is touching. And then as it starts to move through your dimension, essentially it's taking cross sections of this. So it looks like a circle, and then a bigger circle, and then a bigger circle, until it gets to the diameter of this, and then as it continues to pass through, those circles get smaller and smaller as it passes through this plane. So to you, it just looks like a circle. Now, an interesting point with that is, what does a circle look like in two dimensions? Because you can't see it from above either. You're a triangle, but what is a triangle? You don't know what you look like. Think of it as if I were looking at this plane edge on. Everything looks like a line. So as that circle came through, I see a short line. Then I see a longer line. Then I see an even longer line until I finally get the full diameter of that circle. But all I see is a line, which is one dimension. So if I'm in two dimensions, everything appears to be one-dimensional because I can only see. I can't see depth this direction either. An interesting corollary to that is we think in three dimensions, I can see you, I can see depth, I can see, but you really don't. You look, everything views in two dimensions. You have two eyes, though, that are separated, that see things from slightly different angles. You've been to a, three, a 3D movie where you put on glasses. Those glasses work by restricting everything to this eye to one picture and everything to this eye to another picture. And your brain actually interprets the third dimension, that depth. What is it called if you, if you ever like, had a patch over your eye? What do they call that? You lose your depth, depth perception. perception because you only see things in two dimensions. So if you're in two dimensions, you see things in one dimension. And if you're only in one dimension, meaning you're just a line, everything exists on this line. You're another line. What does this line look like to you? It looks like a point. It looks like one dimension. So everything you view in a dimension is one dimension less. So if you thought about a fourth dimensional being coming into our third dimension, we would just perceive it as three-dimensional. So everything that you view in one dimension looks one dimension down from you. Does that make sense? Did to me. Thank you, Brett. <clears throat>
So we're three-dimensional creatures who can only see or perceive two dimensions. And if that's the case, if God is infinite dimensions, then that explains how he is right here with you right now. And you are a part of all those dimensions. You're a part of eternity, but you can only perceive what's here. It's interesting for Brett to talk about a fourth dimension entering those three dimensions because that's precisely what happens in the person of Jesus. So when we say that God is incarnated in the person of Jesus, it is to say that God entered our time and space. He entered our dimensionality in a way that we could perceive him. So we see the full revelation of an infinite God in a finite creature who is fully man and fully God. It's really pretty amazing to think about this. And that was helpful to me because I suddenly had an aha moment. Now, you know, what happens is we do sometimes perceive these points, these points where God interacts with us, right? But they're flat because our perception is flat. We can't see the immensity, the unlimited nature of God. The Apostle Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Now listen to how strange this is. Here's the funny thing is because you've read the Bible so many times, you hit a scripture like this and you don't even hiccup. You don't even trip over it, but you should. And you should understand how someone who is not as familiar as scripture with perhaps the way some of you are, how they might trip over this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. Listen again. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, how could you possibly say something sillier than this, something more counterintuitive than this? How can we fix our eyes on something that is what? Unseen. How can we possibly do that? And that's why later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say more famously, We walk by faith and not by sight. So we have a Holy Spirit capacity, a sensory capacity to know that God is with us, know he's interacting us, know that he is near. We leap over the boundaries of time and space. We leap over the chasm of unbelief and we believe. And when we believe, as Paul will say later in Ephesians, we we see with our hearts. It's a radically different thing. Now, when we're talking about eternity, we are right to begin with the gospel of John. John is the gospel of eternity. That is its primary emphasis, its primary focus. That is its theme. So that's what we're bouncing off of in this series. The last gospel that was written was written to point the church to eternity in ways that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had not. So John wanted to make sure that we saw the eternal perspective on Jesus' teaching that we understood what it was all about. So in John chapter one, last week we read the prologue and it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word of God is eternal. By the word of God in this case, I do not mean the scriptures, though the scriptures do point us to the eternal word. I mean the eternal presence of God. I mean that God's spoken presence in all things, and in this case, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, entered our dimensionality. So Jesus is the word of God incarnate in a way that we can see in our time and our space. John has seven signs and it has seven sayings, and that points us to the eternal God sent by the Father, and the remainder of the book is an exposition on what has been shown to us. So Jesus 
according to John, reopens the doorway to eternal relationship with God. In other words, Jesus enables us to reoccupy eternity. When we walked out of the Garden of Eden, when we fell, when we rebelled against God, we tied ourselves to a futile, dying world. And when that happened, when we stepped away, we literally exited our understanding our innate sense of what eternity is. And so Jesus allows us to re-enter, to re-attain the image of God through his death and his resurrection and his teaching. In his resurrection, we become, from the moment we accept his death and resurrection of our own, as our own, we become eternal creatures again. We start our eternity, which is why I'm saying in this series, we're talking about how to live forever from now on. Not from the point of our deaths, not sometime in the future, but from now on we see ourselves as eternal creatures. Thus, everything we do has eternal ramifications, but no single moment is ultimate. We don't make ultimate things of what happens in the world. We don't pretend this is somehow the eternal space or the eternal sector. It is just a limited deposit on an unlimited eternity, an unlimited account. So we get to the end of John chapter 3. We started, excuse me, we started with the story of Nicodemus, the famous story. And we learned last week that we had to be born from above or reborn or recreated from above in order to occupy eternity again, in order to become from now on the eternal creatures that God made us to be, in order to be restored, redeemed, in order to come back into this eternal space and to live forever from now on. But when we get to the end of John chapter 3, there's another famous teaching that contains this Greek phraseology about God's time, about occupying God's time, God's unlimited space, God's eternity. And that comes in the testimony of John the Baptist, as many of you call him, but I'm going to call him John the Baptizer. I think you can understand why. We don't want to get confused here. John the Baptizer. So John chapter 3, verses 27 through 36 a relatively simple in the context of others we're studying passage. To this, John the baptizer replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I've said, I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits And listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. I got to invite you to the party, the wedding party. And now that joy is complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts, or the Greek could be translated here, understands his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. He's done what he said he would do. He's fulfilled his word. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. God gives the Spirit without 
limitation. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Already, they've already begun it. They've already occupied it. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see that life. For God's wrath remains on them. Now, this is a radically different way of saying what we often say, which we, we tend to be people who believe that, 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 that the means somehow lead to an end. So a person who does evil in this world earns an eternal destiny apart from God. We can speak of that as hell or separation or whatever we want to do. That person earns punishment. That's the way we think. And the person who does good, that person earns heaven. But the Bible's clear. You cannot earn heaven. You can only enter it through the Son of God, the eternal word, and thank God for that because none of us are worthy of it. And so it is not so much that we earn heaven in any way, but that we attain eternity through the Son of God, his death and his resurrection. And for the person that we would say is lost or is still far away from God or whatever, some people might use the word wicked, whatever word you want to use, whatever the thing is, it's not that they've earned hell, it is that futility or death is the destiny of everyone who does not reoccupy eternity. The differences between life and death. That's the way the Bible paints it. Our natural course is futility and death, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, what is possible, in fact, our hope is eternal life that has already begun. Now let's think about the baptizer's testimony here. John the baptizer was an Elijah-esque forerunner predicted in the Old Testament, shown in the Gospels, and some people believed he was the Messiah. In fact, one of the interesting things about John the baptizer is that unlike some figures in the Gospel, we have extra-biblical history about him. So, for example, Josephus speaks at length about the role of John the Baptist, and Josephus says that many followed him as the Messiah. So people, no matter what he said, he could tell people he wasn't. But no matter what he said, people desperately wanted him to be, and so some people followed him. We also know, by the way, that many of Jesus' earliest followers, including some of his apostles, had first been followers of John the Baptist. So John passed the baton to Jesus. He passed his followers to him. So He used his influence humbly to point others to Jesus, and I love this line. I don't think it's talked about enough, but there is this magnificent little section of Scripture in 330, this magnificent verse where, according to the NIV's translation, John says, he must become greater and I must become less. Actually, in this case, what I would offer to you is that in this instance, the King James Version is more literal in its translation, and therefore I think more helpful. According to the King James Version, good translation, the baptizer says, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, the increase thing is not that hard. So the notion that Jesus is coming and that he should become bigger, that he should become more noticeable, greater. That probably isn't so difficult to John, but would you just raise your hand to me if decreasing sounds attractive to you? And if it does, you're, you're probably something other than human. 
None of us want to be diminished. None of us want to decrease. But in this case, John is not talking about being diminished or decreased by another. He's making a conscious choice to serve his function or serve his role and to decrease himself. This is incredibly humble. I would argue to you that the character of a leader is most clearly revealed in how that leader at the right time cedes power to another. The second way that we can see the character of a leader is how that leader shares power, how they equip others, how they delegate, but delegate not in order to give tasks, but to give actual power to another person. So it is how generously a person shares power and how graciously a person cedes power. I will also offer to you that a person who is unable to graciously cede power will not generously share it. That person regards power as a trophy, as a star in their crown, as a personal accolade, not as something to be used in the employ or the service of something greater than themselves or the service of others. John gives us a model here, those of us who are leaders. John shows us how to use power well because he's not reserved in any way, shape, or form. Remember, this is the guy who, like a prophet, steps in and says to everybody, repent now because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent right now because the world is ending. Repent right now because what you're a part of is coming to a close. He is the one who's more boldly than anyone else steps forward with this prophetic word of of change. He's a change agent. At the right time, he asserts himself. He uses all his greatest gifts. He courts others to his cause. He baptizes, I don't know how many people, a lot. He baptizes people and ushers in the coming age. He ushers in an expectancy about what is to come. But when Jesus comes on to the scene, John knows that he has used his presence as best he can, and he steps back and allows Jesus to emerge. Now, had this not happened people would have been confused. There would have been a battle royale between the followers of John and and maybe eventually the followers of Jesus. John makes sure that does not happen. Now, of course, John had an advantage. He knew his role. If we look at Luke chapter 1, verse 46, we see that John the baptizer leapt in his mother's womb when she came into the presence of Mary when Jesus was in Mary's womb. So from the very beginning, even from infancy, John knew his place. He knew his role. In John chapter 1, we're told the story of Jesus coming to be baptized by John. And and John sees him coming off in the distance and says, behold the Lamb of God. And then he says, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals, to wait on him hand and foot. He refuses to baptize him until Jesus says to him, I want you to do this. I want you to allow this moment to emerge. John knows his place. I'm reminded of examples of power 
like I'm talking about that are all too rare in our time and our space. But I think about the 1796 farewell speech of George Washington. If you're a historian, this is an oft-used example, but it's a powerful one. I think about, about Jesus as, as, as the prime example of this kind of, of humility, but I think about human beings who, at least in these instances, they, they incarnated something of that. And, you know, there was no precedent that a president would serve just two terms, and there was no mandate at that point, no legal mandate that a president would serve just two terms. But Washington believed that there was something more permanent than his leadership. He wanted to ensure that he was not crowned king. He wanted to make sure that the democracy he believed in thrived and the best thing he could do for it at that moment, despite the fact, if you know history, there wasn't really a good candidate to take his place. That's the truth. Despite the fact that was true and he knew probably a weaker person would occupy the role and a weaker person did. He nonetheless said, I must decrease in order that the democracy increase. His capacity to be bold with his leadership at the right moment and to step out of the limelight when the show was over shows us something of the character of the man. What is our character? How graciously can we step back and let others emerge? How generously can we share it? That's when we'll be known for what we really are. A great leader is not someone who makes a big splash and is seen by everybody. A great leader is someone who knows when to use power and when to step away from it. When to share it and when to utilize it and always in the service of others or something greater than themselves. John the Baptist is an incredible example here. He used his influence humbly to point others to Jesus and he said that Jesus was unlimited, and that only he could offer eternal life. Now, this is the reason John is willing to decrease. John knows that he does not have direct access to the eternal word of God. He does not have access to the secrets of eternity. He cannot see beyond his own dimensionality. And for that reason, the best he can do is to point others to someone who does know those secrets, is that eternal word, and can see infinity, and can, in fact, usher other people into it. So the reason John's willing to step back is because Jesus can accomplish something he simply cannot. Jesus can bring something to his followers that he simply cannot. He could baptize with water, but Jesus could baptize, as John, the gospel says, with water and with spirit. He could give eternity. He could usher the way. He could open the door. John was thrilled about that. He was thrilled to be the one to invite others to this party. You know, the symbol we're using for this is the symbol of infinity. It's that that little sideways eight that you've seen many times, infinity can have many meanings. So if you're a mathematician, you recognize that infinity does, does, does not literally mean boundlessness. It, it means something that can't be expressed numerically. And so it means that it approaches 100%, whatever 100% is, but it never actually gets there because nothing can be greater than 100. Nothing can be greater than 100% in math. But philosophically, infinity means more than that. It means unboundedness. It means having no limitations. In fact, I I took a look at Webster's definition for infinity, and the word infinite means extending indefinitely or endless. 
Number two, immeasurably or inconceivably great or extensive, inexhaustible. And number three, subject to no limitation or external determination, unlimited. Let's look at those three words. Endless, inexhaustible, unlimited. Just say them with me out loud so you hear their profundity. Endless, inexhaustible, unlimited. Suppose I were to tell you I can give you access to a bank account that is endless, inexhaustible, and unlimited. Would you give me an amen if you'd take me up on that offer? You wouldn't because you wouldn't believe it. You'd say it's too good to be true because it would be. What if I said to you, I could give you capacity to eat everything you want and not gain a pound? Your capacity to do so, I know we could when we were 16, but that's a long time ago, is endless, inexhaustible, and unlimited. You'd go, sign me up. It's better than Noom, right? What if I told you that I could give you access to anything wonderful that was endless, inexhaustible, and unlimited? Who would pass up that offer? There is no such thing in our time and space. But the offer that Jesus makes to us is endless. It is inexhaustible and it is unlimited. Who would pass that up? Who would not trade that which is limited, exhaustible, and ends for that? It's, it's amazing to think that this is true. In fact, John has a hard time expressing it if you remember that scripture I read just a minute ago. But he says, this one who has come is coming, has been given the spirit without limitation. He's been given an unlimited quantity of forever, an unlimited quantity of godness, an unlimited quantity of power, an unlimited quantity of grace, an unlimited quantity that can cover anything that this world messes up or we mess up within it. It's just remarkable. So when we talk about infinity in this sense, with regard to eternity, we're speaking about that which cannot be described, cannot be mathematically measured, cannot possibly be understood scientifically. Eternity is endless, it is inexhaustible, and it is unlimited. Now that explains to us why science will never prove the existence of eternity. Existing as it does on this plane all it can do is observe whatever it can see, and it can do so brilliantly. I mean, I marvel at science. I really do. And, and tremendous, brilliant scientists, what they're able to observe. But in, in Dusatoy's language, the greatest proof of something that is endless, inexhaustible, and unlimited is that science reaches a place where it can go no further. The question any logical human being should ask is, now, what is beyond that? What is it that we're missing? What is it that we can't see? The Apostle Paul talks about it in this way. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great. Now, the reason this was drawn to my attention is that the Greek word that is translated here, incomparably great, is more literally translated unlimited or unbounded, limitless. 
is incomparably, incomparably great or unlimited power for those who what? Believe. Who walk by faith and not by sight. The power, this power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The resurrection, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul is saying here, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have access to unlimited power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that will raise you from the dead the moment you place your faith in Jesus. And that eternity begins right then and extends, well, forever, whatever that means, because we can't even comprehend or understand it. And we will occupy that time of God forever, not for all time, but when time is no more. So to live in Christ is to live forever from now on. Now, the key thing we shape as whole life disciples disciples, is our capacity to see mortality as a deposit in an unlimited account. To see right now as a window to eternity and a part of eternity to understand that our job is to reconcile earth and heaven, to reconcile eternity and what is here now. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in time as it is in heaven in eternity. And what that means is that we are seeking to love our eternal lives from now on, to possess them fully, to have the life that Jesus called abundant. See, to be eternal is to be unlimited. Sure, right now, we are limited by time and space. But for eternity, we will be seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. And that's an amazing truth. If you're like me, There are moments in your deepest thoughts, the ones you may not give voice to, that you you think to yourself, if this eternal God really created me, and if he's really right beside me, all around me, over me, under me, inside of me, if he really loves me with an everlasting love and has redeemed me for his purposes and relating to me, Why can't I see him? And the answer is, if you could see God, he would not be God. If you could see God, he could not be God. So if you want access to eternity, you got to see with the eyes of your heart. Pray with me, would you, Father, we intend to live forever from now on 
So bless us and restore through the resurrection of Jesus your image within us and then help us to become the eternal creatures you created us to be, not when we die, not off in the future, but right now. Reconcile our homes, our neighborhoods, our churches, our hearts with your eternity. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Hey, walk away today with perhaps the most famous extra-biblical quote on eternity that's ever been given. I want you to think about this for a week. This is your homework, and we're going to come back and talk about it next week. The 17th century Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week, and I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.